0: where uh, we will be dismissing uh, most of the children. So if you are in uh, Gray Station, uh, you are going to go exit left, my right. So ages 6 to 5th grade, you're going to follow uh, Mr. Brad. And Blue Station, if you're ages 3 to 5, you're going to follow Miss Issa uh, on your right. The kids in the Gray Station this morning, they're going to be asking this question and answering it um, and uh, let me encourage you. If you have a copy of your loop, uh, the catechism question on the bottom of on page two would be a really, really helpful and encouraging thing for you to write in maybe the opening cover of your uh, your, your your Bible. But the question that they're going to ask is, how is the Word of God to be read and heard? And if you like me are reading through the Scriptures, then you probably wonder, well, how should I read the Word of God? How should it be read and heard? The answer that they're going to be meditating on and that uh, I, with them, will be meditating on this week is that the Word of God is to be read and heard with diligence, preparation, and prayer so that we may accept it with faith and and practice it in our lives. With diligence, preparation, and prayer. It is arguably one of the greatest movies of all time. After Marty McFly returned back to the future from 1955 to 1985, having ensured that his parents shared that dance together at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, the audience expected that the movie would end with our hero Marty kissing his girlfriend and driving away with his rad new truck. But as the lightning flashed across the clear blue sky... The wacky Doc Brown stepped out of what is probably the coolest car in movie history with its gull wing doors and the one-of-a-kind flux capacitor. You know what I'm talking about, the DeLorean. Dressed in strange futuristic clothing, Doc Brown frantically tells Marty that they now need to travel 30 years into the future, but this time not to help his parents, but to help Marty and Jennifer's children. With Marty and Jennifer safely aboard, the DeLorean pulls out into the street, and Marty very astutely says, Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. But Doc Brown responds, Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Then he puts his silver visor down, and the DeLorean takes off and flies into an unknown future in a cliffhanger ending that demanded a sequel. Cliffhangers are powerful tools in storytelling. They are memorable. They create a sense of tension and intrigue. Cliffhangers leave you asking, what's going to happen next? And maybe at the end of Back to the Future, you're wondering, how's that car flying now? Well, two weeks ago, we left off with a cliffhanger at the end of Esther chapter Four. We've been studying through this uh, story in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Esther, and last week we were considering with the lives of all the Jews within the empire in peril because of the wicked Haman's pride and hatred and skillful manipulation of King Xerxes, Uh, we saw that Mordecai implored Queen Esther to plead with the king to intervene and stop the impending genocide of their people. And at a life-changing crossroad like none other, Queen Esther had to choose if she would risk her life to save her people or if she would remain hidden behind the royal Persian crown. With her decision made, she called on Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Susa to hold a fast, and she would risk her life to go before the king. Chapter 4, verse 17 concluded our uh, time together. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So at the end of chapter 4, the reader is left asking, what's going to happen next? So let's answer that question this morning. Turn with me now to Esther chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, let me encourage you to use one of the black pewback Bibles, uh, the black hardcover ones in front of you. If you're sitting in the front row, it's underneath your pew. Uh, We're going to be uh, on page 486 in the black pewback Bibles. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And as we work our way through chapters 5, 6, and 7, we're going to observe four scenes through this portion of the story. Let's look at our first scene. In chapter 5, I'm going to look at verses 1 through 8. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, "'What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? "'It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom.'" And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled." Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Right. So it sounds kind of like another cliffhanger, right? So as she did years ago, here she does again. When the king saw her, Esther once again just happened to win his favor. And she was permitted to come into his presence in the court. You remember the last chapter that we looked at? Esther was concerned that if she were to come into the presence of the king, her life would surely end. But it just so happens that she wins favor, she's invited into his presence. And the favor that she won was significant. This wasn't just, hey, go ahead and come in. Look at how significant the favor was that she won with the king. The king was willing to give her anything she requested, even up to half of his kingdom. So this wasn't just one of those you know, uh, for, uh, you know, just uh, statements of courtesy that you make to someone knowing that that person's never going to actually ask you for something. Right? no. The request could be made, and she could ask for anything. She was given a blank check from the king, and any request that she made could have been granted. But she makes a very careful request, not exactly the kind of request that we would expect. She said, "'If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king.'" So the king is ready to open up his uh, banks of generosity, and Esther, rather than taking advantage, she says, well, if it pleases you, why don't you come to dinner with me? Now, friends, if someone with limitless power and wealth offered you anything you desired, what would you ask for? might be a question that uh, some of us uh, might daydream about when we're driving down uh, the highway. Esther could have asked the king for anything. She could have asked for riches. She could have asked for half the kingdom. She could have asked for Haman himself to be dismissed, jailed, or even killed. Because we know, just as Esther does, Haman has done some great, evil, wicked plotting. But she didn't ask for those things. She simply requested the king's presence at a feast. Now, maybe she got cold feet. Or maybe this just happens to be all part of a very carefully constructed plan. Verse 5, we see that the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. Now, When you look at the Hebrew construction of verse 5, the Hebrew is better understood as saying, so that we may do according to the word of Esther. Sounds kind of subtly different, but there's a sense of irony and also humor in verse 5. A lot of us probably don't have Hebrew joke books at home, but when we carefully look at what this text shows us in the Hebrew, what we see is is that there's ironic humor considering that the king's earlier decree was that each man should be the master of his own house. So, consider the irony that he would say, let us, the men, do according to the word of Esther, not vice versa. And after the feast was over, King Xerxes once again asked his queen, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Now, Esther's response, though, to the king's persistent asking, seems to demonstrate that she had mastered the skill of crafting a cliffhanger. Esther will finally answer the king's question to satisfy her request, but not just yet. We'll see her request finally revealed in chapter 7. But like a good cliffhanger, can you feel the tension in this passage? What is she going to request? What will she do next? How will the king respond? Will he really give to her anything that she asks for? So we now come to our second scene. Verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gates, king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. Now, Imagine yourself in Haman's position here. In all of the kingdom, Haman alone was personally invited by the queen herself to an intimate dinner party that she plans to throw for herself and the king. And there's only one other invite on this guest list. It's Haman. So if you're Haman, then you're probably thinking that your star is rising to unparalleled heights. You have unparalleled influence, unparalleled power and wealth, and a close uh, position of influence to the king, and now his own wife invites you to dinner with them. But it would be long before his mood was soured. Seeing the defiant Mordecai neither rising before him nor trembling, Haman was once again filled with wrath against Mordecai. Now look at verse 11. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows uh, fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Unparalleled power, wealth, influence, position. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. Despite how grand Haman's advanced position was over all the others in the empire, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all his promotions and the king's honor, all of these were worth nothing so long as Mordecai the Jew sat at the king's gate. So as long as Mordecai was alive, Haman, in a sense, could not live. If it wasn't clear by now, brothers and sisters, when we read a passage like this, we are meant to understand that obtaining a position of unparalleled significance, wealth, and influence was not enough for Haman. What he craved was being seen as significant. It wasn't enough that he possessed it. Everyone must see that he possessed it, that he alone held it. When his fragile ego was stroked favorably, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when the idols of his heart were threatened, as with Mordecai once again refusing to give Haman honor, he was consumed with fury. Does that describe you, brother and sister? Do you find yourself at times waxing and waning, From rejoicing to feeling anger and hatred because there is something that you desire and crave to possess that you just can't grasp. Now, if Mordecai was the problem, what then would be Haman's solution? So, who doesn't want a helpful spouse and some helpful friends providing helpful counsel? Their counsel to Haman was that he should have a gallows built about 75 feet high and then convince the king to hang Mordecai on it and then go enjoy dinner. Friends, if you have a friend in your life that tells you, hey, you should go do this really, really bad, wrong, evil thing and then go eat dinner, you should not be friends with that person anymore. The only thing that would satisfy Haman's pride-filled heart was the unjust murder of an image-bearer of God. And notice Haman's reaction. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Sin pleased Haman. And this wasn't just like, a oh yeah, that sounds good. No, the the idea behind this unjust killing of Mordecai pleasing Haman is this felt right. This evil was the right thing to do for Haman. Sin pleased him. It brought pleasure to him. It brought a kind of joy and happiness and satisfaction that nothing else could, especially leaving Mordecai alive. The idea of his enemy being hanged and then Haman feasting with the king was pleasing. And the author, when we, when we come to this passage, the author is painting a tense and dark picture in the scene. Because, if you remember the previous chapters, if Haman could so easily manipulate the king to wipe out all the Jews, then surely hanging just one Jew should not be too difficult. For Haman, the satisfaction of his sinful pride and its demand for honor and respect outweighed the value of human life. But there's another sense of irony in this picture. Because even the size of the gallows that Haman was counseled to have had made would have literally elevated Mordecai. Literally. 75 feet high. Mordecai's death would have drawn all of the eyes of the city of Susa up to him and away from Haman, the very thing Haman cannot tolerate. Do you sense here the absurdity of wickedness and evil and sin? Friends, sin is absurd, period. It's wicked, it does not make sense. If at any point you feel tempted to go sin willingly, a helpful question to ask is, according to the Lord's word, is this reasonable? Sin is never reasonable, and it is always absurd. Sin and the temptation to sin will always lead you down a path of absurdity and stupidity. And you, in Christ, do not have to take that path. Now, let's go back to Haman. One uh, author uh, said that Haman is a case study in what happens in our hearts when our idols are challenged. Haman had made public recognition his idol. And the result was that as long as he was receiving adulation, he felt great. However, when the achievement of his goal was challenged, he responded by lashing out in rage and seeking to feed his idol through boasting even though he still possessed unparalleled power in the kingdom, that was not enough. There was a void at the center of his life that no amount of success could fill. Friends, if you are a Christian, then you should know that we are not exempt from the kind of idolatry that Haman was consumed with. You and I both can be consumed by the same kinds of idols that Haman was. And it doesn't need to be pagan statues made of wood or gold. The kinds of idols that you and I can be consumed with may be as subtle and as simple as pleasure, as comfort, as our own public image, wealth, status, power, control. So many more things. Now, I would argue that what's more dangerous for us is that we, as Christians, may even be tempted to mask our idolatry by using religious language and pious behavior. And by doing so, we fool both ourselves and those around us. And it seems like the Apostle John was very familiar with this idea that Christians may fall into the temptation to give into idols. Because in 1 John chapter 5, he concludes his first letter to the church by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I am not encouraging you to go on a uh, self-focused idol hunt this week, but I am encouraging you, according to the word of God, keep yourselves from idols. What is an idol? What is idolatry? Well, the, biblical counselor, uh, the late biblical counselor, David Pallison, he aptly said, idolatry is a problem of the heart, a metaphor for human lust, craving, yearning, and greedy demand. So you may be wondering, well, I don't know what idols I'm tempted to. Well, you can simply ask this question. What do you crave, yearn, or have a greedy demand for That if you do not obtain, you will rage against the Lord and others. What do you crave, yearn, and have a greedy demand for that competes against the supremacy of God and obedience to his word and love for his people? If you ask that question, I think even one time this week, the answer will come to you very quickly. Haman is a textbook example of someone who has been consumed by idolatry. He is self-centered, self-exalting, self-willed, and self-deceived. He has been consumed by the voices, values, and the vanities of the Persian world. And like the devil himself, Haman is an active enemy who craved, schemed, lied, Tempted, deceived, enslaved, accused, and murdered. Haman is not the kind of man that you want to look like. But now we come to our third scene. In Esther chapter 6. So turn with me to Esther chapter 6, starting in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So we now come to the scene where it just so happened that on that night, the king could not sleep. Unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, who was kept awake by a dream from God in Daniel chapter 2, or Darius, who couldn't rest because he was so troubled by Daniel's probable fate in the den of the lions in Daniel chapter 6, we're not told by the author why Xerxes could not sleep. We're just told that it just so happened that he couldn't. And with every kind of pleasure at his disposal, even a harem full of women for his use, Xerxes just so happened to choose to occupy himself with a reading of the official government records. What can be more boring and quicker to put you to sleep? So as the chronicles were read, it just so happened that the king has now learned that Mordecai was the one who foiled the plot of the two eunuchs who sought to kill King Xerxes Xerxes so many years uh, ago back in Esther chapter 2. And what's more is that he learned that no reward was bestowed on Mordecai for his great act of loyalty and service. It is strange That in a uh, culture and a society where acts of loyalty and service are to be rewarded by those who uh, are in power, Mordecai did not get rewarded. So what would be done about this? Well, it just so happened that as the king asked who was in the court who could rectify the situation, Haman had just entered. Now, it's interesting timing here that as the king can't sleep and he's having the chronicles read, we're not told how much time has lapsed, But while the king is unable to sleep, Haman is just rushing in to come into the king's presence. Kind of gives you an idea of what Haman's mission was. He needed to quickly get the king's attention. Verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? I encourage you to underline this phrase, the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 6 again, and Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Now, in the story of Esther, there, it's full of plotting and scheming. But interestingly, in verse 6, this is the only time in the entire story that we see a thought. He, Haman says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So this phrase, the man whom the king delights to honor, this is going to be an important phrase in this chapter because it's repeated six times. So life is going to be good for the man whom the king delights to honor. And Haman is no dummy. He knows. He knows that the man whom the king delights to honor is going to be filled with blessings and uh, goodness and life is going to be good. But... We're going to see an interesting contrast here. Whereas Esther was quick to show subtlety and quick to be slow to reveal her desire, Haman, on the other hand, was ready to strike while the iron was hot. Look at verse 7. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, if any of you ever become like a famous movie star and you go to the Oscars or whatever the other uh, you know, big movie celebrations are, oftentimes famous designers are just going to give you an outfit that they've designed and probably some other celebrity has worn, right? So it's a big deal to have Gucci give you a free outfit. It's a bigger deal when the former Batman wore that same suit that you're now going to wear because not only are you wearing a big name design uh, suit jacket and, 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 and outfit... You're wearing Batman's suit. That's a big deal. Now, forget about the courtly language. Haman was ready to cut to the chase. So he says to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought. But not just any robes, robes which the king has worn. And don't just give him any horse. It's the horse that the king has ridden that he should be riding on. And let's not forget the cherry on top. Put a royal crown set on his head. And you really need to make a big deal out of this. So, let the robes and the horse be handed over to, the one, uh, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Do you see this sense, this repeated theme, that visuals are a big deal in Xerxes' kingdom? Let all the people see... All of the majesty and the glory that you, King Xerxes, can bestow upon the man whom you, the king, delight to honor. Now, the king's response is hilarious. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I just imagine... That when King Xerxes said this, he just turned around, spouted out the words, and then just put up the hand to let uh, Haman know that he should go. It's really ironic. Haman thought, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And then the king's stunning response, do it to Mordecai. So began Haman's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Imagine Haman's face when he discovered for whom these honors were actually intended. The honors he coveted above all else were to be bestowed on Mordecai the Jew, his prime enemy. And worst of all, he personally would be the one to proclaim Mordecai's elevation. Now... Being an inside man and knowing how the system works and knowing how the gears of the empire spin, Haman knew he could not defy the king's command. So verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. It's really, really interesting. Haman was really hoping that his head would be covered with a royal crown. And instead, his head is now covered in royal shame. Did you notice how this whole affair of honor and humiliation concluded? Mordecai simply returned to the king's gate to continue his royal work as an official. But Haman was utterly humiliated. And he was mourning. It's the complete opposite. It's a complete reversal of Mordecai's situation in previous chapters. When it was found out that all of the Jews would be wiped out by Haman's evil edict, Mordecai was weeping and mourning and lamenting. And now, when Haman is royally humiliated, it is Mordecai who is honored and Haman who is mourning. Verse 13. We find our beloved Uh, spouse of Haman and his friends again. Verse 13, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. It's got to be really hard when you're having a really hard day and you come home and your spouse says, Sucks to be you. (laughs) Whereas in chapter 5, Haman recounted to his wife and friends his unparalleled greatness, here he now recounts his unparalleled humiliation. And in Esther chapter 4, it was the Jews who were seen mourning, and now it is Haman who is seen mourning, not just privately, publicly. There are people around him who see him mourning, and he tells him why he is mourning. Kind of like when Haman approached the the uh, the, the, the queen's presence through his, uh, her eunuch and explained to her everything that had happened to him. Now it's Haman mourning, and rather than finding words of comfort from his friends and his wife, Haman is met with a warning that his fall before Mordecai hasn't ended; it has only just begun. And this is a really interesting detail because nowhere are we told how Haman would fall. Rather, providentially, perhaps, Haman is notified that his demise was only beginning. His very helpful wife and very helpful wise friends tell him, look, man, if he's Jewish, you don't stand a chance. Now, why would his wife and friends just happen to say such a thing? A very interesting conversation that the author just happens to record here for us. Verse 14, where we conclude with our third scene. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Maybe you forgot there was another feast that was coming. Because it looks like Haman was a little preoccupied with his own self-pity. So we now come to our fourth scene, Esther chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom shall be fulfilled. Maybe if they had movies back then. Uh, Queen Esther would have asked, good Lord, I would desire a DeLorean to be granted to me. I know I did until I realized it gets like nine miles per gallon and it was a, a, a complete economic failure for uh, the DeLorean Motor Company. Anyway, at some point, the cliffhanger has to come to a resolution and we're going to see that now. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Did you notice the the double request here? She says, if it pleases you, O king, spare my life and the life of my people. That's my request. I don't want anything else. Just this. Verse 4, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, did you notice she's just simply quoting Haman's edict here? Right? Better be real careful when you put something in writing. If we had been uh, sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Another cliffhanger. You feel the tension here. Esther could have properly and very rightly responded as Nathan did in his confrontation with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And she could have easily said to King Xerxes, You are the man! None of this could have happened without uh, the king uh, not having been complicit by giving his approval to Haman's evil plan. But with the king, who just happened to be sufficiently enraged, it's now time to pull the sheet for the big reveal. Here's the moment that the readers have been waiting for, that the king has been waiting for. Verse 6, and Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman... Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The plot is exposed. And the villain is finally revealed. Haman's only possible reaction before the king and the queen was stunned terror. Rather than following the king into the garden to talk his way out of his own self-made crisis, we read that Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Do you notice another irony here? The one who had sought unwittingly to take her life now wanted her, Queen Esther, to grant him his own. Another stunning irony. Verse 8, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Verse 8 is really, really interesting. In his rage, the king goes into the palace garden. Maybe he picks up a tulip to calm down. Puts the flower down, comes back to where all the wine drinking happened, and in his rage, he witnessed a troubling scene. The author said Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. So, what does the scene mean? Did he just stumble and fall backwards onto the couch? Well, stumbling and falling onto a couch probably wouldn't enrage the king Wondering is will he even assault the queen in my presence? Some scholars look at verse eight and they say that in his rage, the king may have thought that Haman was going to rape the queen, assault the queen, thereby just furthering the uh, the rage within King Xerxes. Now, do you remember the warning that Haman's wife and his friends gave him earlier in chapter six, verse thirteen? If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will, sh- you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Notice that subtle little detail there. Ironically, the same man who wanted to kill the whole race of the Jews simply because one man would not fall before him is now literally falling before Mordecai's family, And perhaps providentially fulfilling his own wife's prediction. Esther's story so far has been full of ironies. But here in the closing verses of chapter 7, we find the cruelest irony of them all. Verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house. Fifty cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So the very instrument of death that Haman had prepared to deal with his enemy became the very instrument to ensure his own death. Another ironic reversal. Verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king Abated. It's a really interesting uh, detail that's uh, perhaps not presented in verse 10. For all of the splendor and all of the glory and all of the riches and influence and significance that Haman craved, his death is rather quiet. It's rather uneventful. There's no glory in his death. He didn't die in battle, he died in vengeance. And with his death, then the wrath of the king abated. So, that's chapter 7. And with Haman dead and the wrath of the king now satisfied, just like when Marty McFly returned to 1985, you would think that the death of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, would be the end of the story. The good guy won, the bad guy lost, that's the end. But notice... Even with the villain's death, the danger and terror of his evil edict still remained intact. Esther and her people were not out of the woods just yet. We are left once again, in a sense, with another cliffhanger. The enemy is dead, but the threat still remains. And that's how chapter 7 ends. And like the Jews in Susa, dear Christian, our enemy is defeated. But Christians still live on dealing with sin and suffering, threats and dangers, even death. If you're not a Christian and you're here visiting with us this morning, we're really glad you're here. You may have this idea that Christians just rely on Christianity because it provides a little bit of comfort and security from the big monster death. And you are partly right, but I'd encourage you uh, to hang around, uh, to talk with us some more, because there is much more to the safety and the security that Christians experience by believing upon Jesus Christ than simply just having a warm security blanket for when the nights get cold. There is coming a day when we will all face the great interruption that is death. But in Christ, we will never taste death. Not really. In Jesus, we need not fear death. Christians recognize that when Jesus died and rose again, he destroyed the power of death. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Christians recognize that when Jesus died and rose again, he destroyed the one who had the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Maybe you remember from a couple of months ago when we were studying the book of Hebrews uh, in chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Christians recognize that since Jesus died and rose again, as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed, to be defeated, is death. Christians recognize since Jesus died and rose again, not even death can separate us from the powerful love of God. Christians recognize that there is coming a day when our great king will say, death shall be no more. The death of death in the death of Christ means victory for all who would ever believe in him. And when our great king Jesus returns, he will defeat the last enemy, death, and death will be no more. You don't have to wonder if that's the case. Your king has said this is the case. My word will not return void. And when he says death will be reversed, it will never come back to haunt you again. So when we read a story like this, what can we learn? As God's people, what can we learn from seven chapters of this story? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So how does this story give us hope? If we read this story seven chapters in, and we assume that all of these events were the result of coincidence, then we've misunderstood the story. Nothing has happened by accident. And nothing in your life happens by accident. The word coincidence Chance, luck, strike them from your vocabulary and replace them with something that the Bible actually says exists. Providence. Vashti's downfall, Esther's rise, Mordecai's loyalty, Haman's promotion, Mordecai's defiance, Haman's plotting, Esther's resolve, Mordecai's recognition, Esther's feast, Haman's fall, and finally, Haman's death. None of these events simply happened by chance. All of these moments were the result of the invisible hand of providence. While the Lord has remained hidden and invisible thus far in the story, we know he is the divine sovereign agent orchestrating and arranging all things from the very beginning to the very end to fulfill his promises to his people and to defeat his enemies. In his providence... He has defeated the enemy of the Jews and he has secured and continued to secure the lineage through which the Savior of the world would come. This is no mere story. This is not an accident that has happened that is just really entertaining to read once a year during the Feast of Purim. This story is about God's invisible hand of providence. Not because uh, God was somehow just reacting to something he didn't see coming. But because God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. And even today, dear brother and sister, he is working through all things and in all things and with all things for the good of his people and the glory of his own name. Even if we don't understand how or why. It's commonplace nowadays to say, everything happens for a reason. But brother and sister, the Bible has something so much better to say. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, and we know, not we think, not maybe, not we feel, not we guess. No, we know that for those who love God All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. If you are in Christ, then you can rest right now in the fact that everything that happens happens for you by God's wise and sovereign providence. Everything happens for you. It doesn't just happen to you. It's not just that you're the innocent victim in the story. No, brother and sister, if you have found safety and refuge in Jesus Christ, God is working all things even in your being the victim, for your good. He will not abandon you. He will not leave you. And when death faces you and knocks on your door, you will not lose. If you are in Christ, you can rest in the fact that God's providence is for you. Well, you might be wondering, well, Pastor Chris, you've used this P word a lot in this sermon. What does providence mean? Well, as Jerry Bridges very helpfully said, God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. So what do Esther chapters 1 through 7 tell us? A lot of things. And I think one of the lessons that we can learn from is we don't need to know how his providence works. We just need to rest in the fact that it does. In his wise and sovereign rule over all things, God's care for you, dear saint, is constant. It cannot be shaken, and you, no matter how hard you try, you cannot change his mind to care for you. Through the good and the bad, the easy and the difficult, the, 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 the light and the heavy, in life and in death, God's sovereign, mysterious, and often mind-boggling providence demonstrates his care for his precious saints, and his providence will never fail you. Will it disappoint you? Maybe, if your expectations are for yourself, if you think that you can figure out the Rubik's cube that is God's will, but it will never fail you. But I think there's a, a couple more interesting and important questions to ask than just Uh, what what do I do with these seven chapters? When you read chapter 5, ask yourself, who is the man who deserves the highest honors and the most indulgence of praises, yet his enemies sought to kill him? Ask yourself, who will intercede on our behalf before the king whose wrath we have rightly incurred? When you read chapter 6, Ask yourself, who is the man whom the king delights to honor? In my sin, surely it can't be me. When you read chapter 7, ask the question, whose death will satisfy the wrath of the king? Ian Duguid, a reformed author and writer, so very helpfully said the following. I'm going to quote him in length before we conclude our time this morning. My hope and aim is not only to equip you to do various works for the Lord, uh, but my hope is to woo you to look at the Son of God in whom God the Father is well-pleased. And if you will look to Christ, I think your hearts will be very richly satisfied. Duguid asks the question, who is the man that God the great King delights to honor? It is none other than Jesus Christ. One day, Jesus will be at the head of a great victory parade, leading his enemies behind him. One day, every knee will bow before him, willingly or not, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of our knees will bow before him one day. Our king is utterly different from Ahasuerus. We have a king who doesn't need to be manipulated and cajoled to do what is right. Our king does what is right because he himself is righteous. He cannot do anything other than the right. We have a king who, instead of being consumed with himself and his own interests, has staked his name and reputation upon a people who, far from inventing charges against, uh, I'm sorry, uh, upon a people who he would always call his own even when it was costly for him to do so. We have a king who, far from inventing charges against us, took the charges that we had deservedly incurred for failing to serve him as we ought and laid them upon his dearly beloved son. It was our king's own son who was taken and impaled on a tree, bearing our curse all the way to death. Our king's wrath was poured out in full upon his son on the cross. And if God's fury has been poured out in full upon Christ, now there is none left for us. If our debt has been paid in full, now we are free to go. What is more, we are free to come into the king's presence as a dearly beloved son or a precious daughter welcomed for Christ's sake no one and nothing can separate us from the love of this king he won't love us today and leave us to hang tomorrow no matter what we do furthermore the basis of our appearing before the father is not if i have found favor in your sight but rather if christ has found favor in your sight our destiny is bound up in christ if we are christians Having loved us and given his son for us while we were still sinners, will God the Father give us up now that we are justified by the blood of his son? Can his enemies snatch us out of his hand? Can Satan's accusations remove us from his care? Can death itself drag us out of his presence? Not with, not with a king like the one we serve. No one and nothing can take us away. From his great love. There is no condemnation for us if we are in Christ Jesus, if our faith and trust are placed in him as Savior and Lord. Do you know the sure and certain love of that King? He has loved us so much. Is he not worthy of all our praise and indeed of our very hearts? All who believe this gospel need to hear over and over again those precious words no condemnation. Christ Jesus has found favor before the Father for you. Christ Jesus has made peace between us and God, a peace that nothing in heaven or earth can destroy. Is he not worthy of receiving afresh today all our praise from the bottom of our hearts? Is he not worthy of all our trust, even when his hand is invisible?